Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, before we get started tonight, we have a lot to cover tonight. We're back in 1 Kings, and we are going to cover three chapters tonight. So you need to just sort of buckle your seat belts and hunker down. We're going to fly over these next three chapters fairly quickly because there's a lot of detailed construction type information and so not a lot for us to really uh, bore down on. Now before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the Word in fellowship, ready to concentrate, and uh, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so grateful that we can come to you. We have your word. There are so many believers down through the centuries who have not even been able to possess their own copy of the scriptures, not able to possess a completed canon of scripture, not able to possess the scripture in their own language. And yet we have a plethora of translations. We have the uh, original language texts available to us. And you have overseen this entire process so that we know that we have eternal truth available to us through your word. And it is your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And as the psalmist said, it is in your light that we see light. And that means that we can properly understand and interpret the events around us, the circumstances of our lives, only when we view it through the lens of divine viewpoint which is expressed in your word. Now, Father, as we submit to the teaching of your word tonight, we pray that we can understand the things we study, see how it fits within your flow of, of uh, the flow of history as you have designed it in preparation for the coming of Christ as he had not yet uh, come in the Old Testament as they anticipated a coming Messiah. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in 1 Kings. And just to give you an orientation as to where we are in 1 Kings, the first 11 chapters cover the uh, period of Solomon's reign. And that was for 40 years. And the first chapter covers the transition, the inauguration, uh, installation of Solomon, the establishment of his kingdom. 1-1 down through 2-6, we see the uh, attempted uh, uh, seizure of the throne by Adonijah, the accession of Solomon, then in chapter 2, David's death, followed by various executions, mopping up operations necessary to clean things up at the beginning of Solomon's reign. From 3-1 through 866, we cover the rise of Solomon. So we're in the middle of this. We've already looked at chapters 3 and 4 last time. In fact, there's a little caveat. Not only do we have textual problems when it comes to looking at the text of Scripture, sometimes uh, error slips in and somebody writes one word when they're reading another word. It even happens in pastor's notes when they look at the Scripture and see one number, and in their notes they... Write another number. And I think at the end, uh, now most of you can't remember back a month ago, but at the end of that last, um, the last class where it talked about all of the different accomplishments of, uh, of Solomon, I, I misidentified, I don't have it in front of me now, but I misidentified how many uh, uh, hymns he wrote. I think he wrote a thousand. And five, and I said something like five thousand or six thousand, and um, but it was just a little over a thousand, and that's important because we have some of those. We only have three psalms and the Song of Solomon out of all the songs that he wrote, but that shows the importance that music played uh, in his reign. So three one to eight sixty six is where we are right now in the rise of Solomon, uh, dealing with the his construction projects 
his uh, marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh, uh, his granting of uh, being granted wisdom uh, by God, and the way he uh, organizes and runs the kingdom. And in chapters 5, 6, and 7, the focus is on his construction projects. And so that's what we're looking at uh, tonight. Try to get through all of this. So the focus in chapters 5 through 7 is the building of the Solomonic Temple. So let me just give you a bird's eye view, sort of a flyover of these chapters, uh, break it down in terms of the basic outline. Uh, these, there's a contract, building contract, with Hiram, the king of Tyre. Hiram, I believe, was a, was a believer. And he was a friend of David's and now is a friend of Solomon's. And they work together in a remarkable way. And there's little that we know uh, about this period in the ancient world. But I believe that between Hiram and Solomon, they, uh, they were the most dominant power block on the face of the earth during that period of time. And that's in 5.1 to 1.12 where there's a building contract with Hiram. Then we have the conscription of labor. He organizes his labor force for the building of the temple in 5.13 through 18. Third, we have the construction of the temple described in chapters 6, 1 through 10. The construction of the temple in 6, 1 through 10. Fourth, there will be the confirmation of the covenant with God. God appears to uh, Solomon a second time and will confirm the Davidic covenant with him. This is a very important passage, 6, 11 to 13. Then fifth, there will be the conclusion of the temple construction, 6, 14 to 38. Sixth, we'll look at other construction as described in chapter 7, 1 through 12, specifically Solomon's own royal palace. And then seventh, there will be a description of all of the articles, all of the contents uh, within the temple itself and how they were constructed and built, and that's in 7.13. So that pretty much takes us through as far as we will uh, go from 13. That goes from 13 down to 51, the contents of the temple. Now, if you didn't get all of that down when you were taking notes, don't worry, you'll see each of these again. So we'll begin with the first 12 verses in chapter 5 where we learn about the contract that Solomon enters into with Hiram for the purchase of the materials for building the temple. In the first two verses, we see that this comes as a result of Hiram's initiation. Verse 1 Hiram initiates the contact. We read, Now Hiram king of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that he had been anointed king in place of his father, for Hiram had always loved David. So he <clears throat> sends his servants to Solomon. Uh, Hiram had begun to reign in Tyre uh, during the end, the latter uh, decade or so of David's reign, he had become very close to David. I believe Hiram was an Old Testament believer because of various things that he says. The purpose for sending his servants to uh, Jerusalem was to congratulate Solomon on being anointed king. And at this time, both he and Solomon, he's older than Solomon, but they're young. They're, they've got the energy of the youth. They are aggressive and they want their respective kingdoms to grow and expand in dominance, yet without military conquest. And this is a fantastic alliance that develops because under Hiram, uh, the Phoenicians control the seaways. They control all trade that takes place on the water. The Phoenicians were a phenomenal seagoing people. They established a variety of colonies, not only around the Mediterranean, but also outside of the Mediterranean. Carthage was founded by the Phoenicians. There were Phoenician colonies in what is now Spain, what was called Tarshish. There's even uh, archaeological remains that they found in North America. I'll get into this some in the next couple of weeks. 
uh, next couple of lessons, but in uh, up in the area around New England, they found the remains of a dock that was used by the Carthage by the Phoenicians where they apparently would come to North America and trade and leave. And this was, they, 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 they just ruled the seas around the world. And we've even found uh, Carthaginian coins and Phoenician coins in different places in the interior of the North American continent, in Kentucky, Ohio, uh, places like this. So they, they definitely... Uh, Got around. So Phoenicia controlled the trade routes and Israel, I mean the, the sea routes, and Israel controlled the, the land routes. So between the two of them, all trade in the ancient world was controlled by either Phoenicia, Tyre, or uh, Israel. All the ancient roadways that went from Persia to Egypt, went from Egypt up north to Cappadocia to Greece. All these trade routes intersected going through the Middle East and going through Israel. And so Solomon dominated the trade. So between the two of them, they uh, controlled all trade and they had a tremendous impact upon the economy. So the, the Tyre had a monopoly on the sea and Israel on the land. So they, uh, Hiram <clears throat> makes this uh, Offer initiative towards uh, towards Solomon, and Solomon responds in verse three, and actually in verses three through six we see Solomon's response to Hiram, uh, and he he and the begin in their negotiation of how this is going to work. He says Solomon says in verse three, you know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. And God did not, if you recall, did not allow David to build a temple because he was a man of war. There are some people who try to make that uh, into support for God's view of pacifism. The issue was that David was distracted by bringing security to the kingdom, and he did not have time to focus on the building the temple, and this is the uh, one of the primary reasons why God reserved that for for Solomon. This was David's uh, desire, as we studied in Hebrews. There is a heavenly pattern for the tabernacle and for the temple. Uh, this heavenly pattern was revealed to Moses and also to David, and there's hints in the scripture that David did a tremendous amount to plan for this. He accumulated the gold. He accumulated uh, the wood. He accumulated all these materials. He organized things. He planned out everything. He established all of the various details. And in First Chronicles chapter 23, verses 1 and 19, we read, Then David gave to his son Solomon the plan of the porch of the temple, its buildings, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the room for the mercy seat. That's the Holy of Holies. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. So there is divine revelation to David regarding the minutia of temple construction, how everything is to be, uh, to be built, and this is then passed on, communicated from father to son, according to First Chronicles chapter uh, 28. In verse four, uh, we hear about we read about the peace under Sol- Solomon's reign. Now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. In verse five. He, his, his intent on building the house uh, for the name of the Lord, as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build a house for my name. So what this means is that, that Solomon is specifically relying upon the Davidic covenant, which promised an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. Now, this is a little backdrop. We're going to come back to the Davidic covenant, or at least reference it, a little later on, because it's 
was possible that this would this fulfillment of the seed of David would go through Solomon. But because of Solomon's disobedience, this does not happen. But it was potential at this particular time. So in verses five, uh, 3 through 6, Solomon makes this offer. He, verse 6, he says, Now therefore, command that they, that is your servants, cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. One thing that stands out in this is that Solomon doesn't settle for second best. Now, it's, it's not appropriate, I don't think, to go to passages like this and make a direct application to the building of a church today. Church is not the temple. This is the temple of God, the dwelling place of God in Israel. And so that is a unique structure. But the principle is that that it, we should not compromise with mediocrity uh, in, in doing anything for the Lord. We should always seek the very best for the Lord and do everything to His glory. And so he wants the best craftsman, the, the most skilled craftsman he can get for the construction of the temple. Now, when Hiram hears this, He rejoices. This is verse 7 through 9. We see the response of Hiram, and he rejoices greatly. He's uh, thrilled with this idea. He said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. And according to the text, he says, Blessed be Yahweh. He understands who the Lord is. This is one of the reasons, I think, that Hiram was a believer. But he's going to negotiate a little bit over the deals of the contract. And he responds in verse 8, and he says, I'll do everything except two things. There's two adjustments that I want to make to this contract. The first is the way we transport the cedar. Rather than sending your people up to Tyre to help cut the cedar, my people will do all the logging, and then we will float the cedar down the Mediterranean south to the port down at Jaffa, which is the port near Tel Aviv now, uh, but it's the port that, that later on Jonah is going to sail from. It's the area that uh, Peter goes to in uh, Acts chapter 10 where he's going to, uh, where he wakes up and there's a dream that he has and God reveals to him that there will be a change, that there is a change in the dispensations, the Mosaic law, dietary laws are no longer into effect, and that there's a Gentile centurion that he needs to go talk to at Caesarea by the sea. All that happens in that same location, but, but what happens here is that the um, uh, Hiram is saying that we're going to float the logs down to Jaffa, and then your people, your laborers, will be responsible for moving the, the logs from Jaffa to Jerusalem so that the men of Israel and Tyre won't be working together. The second adjustment is that Solomon will not pay the workers directly or pay uh, Hiram for the workers, uh, Solomon's pay is going to be to provide food for Hiram's court, which is uh, quite a bit, as we will see in verse 11, which describes which describes <clears throat> what Solomon paid. And Solomon gave Hiram Solomon gave Hiram twenty thousand cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of beaten oil. Thus Solomon would give Hiram year by year. So every year he supported the household of of, uh, Hiram. This equates to 125,000 bushels of wheat a year and 115,000 gallons of olive oil a year. According to 2 Chronicles 2, verse 10, this also included barley and wine. So this is an annual payment. He's going to provide all the food for everyone in Hiram's court. Verse 12, we read that this is a result of God's wisdom. Remember last time we studied in chapter 4 and chapter 5, God had asked Solomon for what he wanted more than anything else, and Solomon prayed for wisdom. And so this is part of that section showing how Solomon's wisdom works itself out in all of these 
uh, different areas, his administration, his leadership of the people, as well as the way he designs and constructs the uh, temple, the organizing all of the workers and everything related to that. David, of course, did the uh, architectural planning. Solomon carries it out and organizes all of the workers. Starting in verse 13, we see the conscription of labor. We talked about the contract with Hiram in the first 12 verses. In verses 13 through 18, his conscription of labor. And this is how he organizes the labor force. There is a levy of workers in verses 13 through 14. He raised up a labor force out of all Israel of 30,000 men. He sent them to Lebanon and shifts, 10,000 each month. So they were on a rotation labor basis. They were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. And Adoniram is placed in charge of this particular labor force. Solomon also set aside 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stone. So he has uh, 70,000 burden bearers are doing the heavy lifting and the transporting and 80,000 stone cutters that he sets aside. According to verse 16, besides the 3,000, besides this, he had 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people. So you've got 70,000 plus 80,000 plus 30,000 plus 3,300. And this leaves you with 183,300 plus there's another 550 mentioned in 1 Kings 9.23 for a total of 183,850. Their work is summarized in verses 17 through 18. The king commanded them to quarry large stones, three kinds of stones, large stones, uh, costly stones, and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple. Now, we don't have anything left of the Solomonic temple. Nothing whatsoever. What we have is what was left over from the foundation laid in the Herodian temple. Uh, At the last pre-trib conference, Randy Price gave a report on some of the things going on on the Temple Mount. One of the things he pointed out was that as the uh, Arabs have been illegally excavating on the Temple Mount uh, because they're building an underground mosque that will hold about 5,000 people. They've been just taking all of the dirt. They they haven't been going through it with archaeologists or anything. There's no archaeological permit, permit to dig or anything like that. They're just taking the stuff out in dump trucks and dumping it in a uh, sort of a garbage dump down in the Kidron Valley and then the next day the Israeli authorities go in and take all that dirt and haul it off to a site where they sift it and go through it. But one of the things that has come out of this, it's an Arab attempt to destroy any evidence that the Jews have a historical claim to the Temple Mount, is that they have discovered a few things, and now we we know for uh, certainty where the foundations to the Zerubbabel Temple were, where the platform was set up. And because of that, we have... That's the first time we've had uh, this level of certainty as to where the pre-Herodian temple uh, was located. Now, we do know that in with the Herodian temple, there were some enormous stones that were uh, moved up onto the temple mount, in excess of 140,000 uh, tons. That's a tremendous these rocks are enormous and they move those with very primitive means and you have the same kind of thing that was going on uh, at Solomon's time and so there were three different kinds of stones that were used in the uh, construction of the temple and laying the foundation for the Solomonic Solomonic temple now when you look at this section where it talks about the the different builders and the organization of the labor, there are some things that appear or usually pointed out as being uh, contradictions in the text. And it seems that these verses, verses 13 down through 18, uh, are contradicted in chapter 9, chapter 9, 20 to 22. 
But in 9.20 to 22, there are two different terms used in the Hebrew text that distinguish it from the English text. In the, in the Hebrew text, you just have laborers, but in the Hebrew text, you have the word mas for laborers and mas oved for slave laborers. And so there is a, there's a distinction uh, there as well. Also, you have other uh, accountings of this, this group of laborers, the 180,000 or so uh, laborers. For example, 1 Kings 9.23 says that these were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550. And that is separate from the 3,300 that are mentioned in 516. Then you have Second Chronicles 2:17 and 18. Solomon numbered all the aliens. Now we're going to learn that most of these laborers were Canaanites who still lived in the land. They, uh, many of them were not Jews. So he numbered all the aliens who were in the land of Israel following the census which his father David had taken, and 153,600 were found. He appointed 70,000 of them to carry loads and 80,000 to quarry stones in the mountains, and 3,600 supervisors to make the people work. Now, the, the, the total number in Chronicles passages and the uh, Kings passages works out to be the same. They just arrive at the number a little bit differently depending on whether they're focusing on the non-Israelites and the uh, Canaanites. So what we have is that uh, there were 550 officials who led the work project, according to 1 Kings 9.23. There were 150,000 non-Israelites, but there were 3,600 uh, foremen. And there were also 250 officials that supervised uh, the labor force. So when you add all these together, you still come up with the same basic total of 183,850 workers. So the scriptures do not contradict each other. In Chronicles, the Canaanite overseers are distinguished from the Israelites. Uh, there's 3,600 Canaanites and 250 Israelites. In Kings, the distinction is made between superior and inferior. 3,300 inferior supervisors 550 superior overseers or supervisors, and of those, 250 are Israelites and 300 are Canaanites. So those of you who really like to handle numbers a lot, you can play around with that and get it figured out. Okay. Um, third division is the construction of the temple. This is covered in chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, the construction of the temple. Now, if we look at verse 1, we read, It came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. This is one of the most significant chronological notations in the Old Testament because we can date through various means of comparison and what's going on in different civilizations, we can date the year of Solomon's accession, and then all, and that's at 966, or when he begins to build the temple in 966, and we just add 480 years to that, and we come up with 1,446 for the date of the of the coming out of of the land of Egypt, or the Exodus. So that gets us a, uh, what's called an early date for the book of Exodus based on the numbers in the text in 1 Kings 6 1. So when people come along and say that the uh, Pharaoh of Egypt was Ramses, Ramses is in the 12th century. And they, 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 they just say, well, whoever wrote Kings was wrong. So they're, they're not dealing honestly with the numbers that we find in in the text. So this occurs in the fourth year of Solomon, the years 967 and 966 BC, and it begins on the month of, of Ziv, which is the second month, and, and when there's no date 
mentioned, that means they began on the first of the month. And then we have the description given, uh, the details of the construction. Now, this isn't meant to be uh, to give us the ability to write a blueprint, but to give us a general understanding of how the temple was structured. The writer is more interested in the theological significance than the archaeological uh, details. Now, I have a few pictures here. I want to show you these are artists' um, renditions of Israel or Jerusalem at this particular time. This is Jerusalem at the time of David. And you see this really isn't very large. This would be uh, David's palace located here. This is the Kidron Valley here to the lower right. Uh, you see a trail coming down from the city gate. This is down to the uh, spring of Gihon. This is where Solomon was anointed. Over here on this other side, uh, you have another valley. This is the Tyro, uh, Tyropean Valley or the Valley of the Cheesemakers, which is uh, now filled in. It's been completely uh, filled in. And you don't see much evidence of that. And over here, this hill over here is what is today referred to as Mount Zion. It is this area up here in the upper right-hand corner, which was the threshing floor of Yeruna the uh, Hittite or Jebusite. And this is where uh, Solomon's temple was to be established. So that gives you an idea of the size of the old city of Jerusalem. And you can see that this, this finger that comes down between these two valleys is fairly narrow. And from the king's palace up here, you're higher than anyone else in the city. So you look down on all of the, all the rooftops. Here is another artist's depiction of the city at the time of the temple. Here's the temple up here. We'll read about how Solomon built the Milo. And that is this area right here between, at the top of the city, there was a depression there, and so he filled that in and leveled it out. That's the, that's the, uh, Milo. So the old city of David is not very large. Here's another, uh, artist depiction of the city at the time of Solomon. You see the temple up here at the, up on the temple mount and down below the city of David itself. The springs of Gihon over here to the right, and the Tyropean Valley here uh, to the left. Here's another artist's depiction of the Solomonic Temple. And I want you to pay attention to how this artist depicted the two uh, pillars. These are freestanding pillars. We'll see a couple of different approaches to that in, in these artist depictions. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but these were the two two. Pillars, Boaz and Yaquin. And then here's the Temple Mount as it would have looked at the time of Solomon. This is the Temple Mount itself here. And then down below you have Solomon's Palace because it was really a number of different uh, buildings. That's why it took so much longer uh, to construct it because it was much longer, much more complicated construction project than the rather simple Temple uh, construction. Okay, here we have a basic diagram of Solomon's temple. To the east, you had the altar. You had just to, just to the uh, south, the Sea of Bronze. These two circles here represent the two pillars. Then you would go into the holy place where you have three basic articles of furniture. Now, the, the overall structure of Solomon's temple is... Uh, 90 feet long, as you see here, 90, about 90 feet long, 90 cubits long, which would be 135 feet, um, 90 cubits long, uh, 30 cubits wide, which is 45 feet, and the height is uh, about 45 cubits or about, um, about 70 feet for a total of 2,700 square feet. The dimensions for the temple are exactly double the tabernacle. Now, inside the holy place, you'd have three articles of furniture, the table of showbread, but there was considered one table, but there were now ten tables. 
and then you had the candles, the candelabra, but it was considered one, even though there are now ten candelabras, and then the altar of incense. As you enter into the most holy place, there was a veil, but there was also a gate, uh, double doors that closed, so they would be open, and then you would go through the veil into the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant uh, resided. And all of this is described beginning in verse 2, the house of the uh, the, the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, which is about 90 feet. It's width 20, 30 feet. Its height 30 feet, uh, 30 cubits, which is 45, uh, 45 feet. Did I get that right? I've got one thing in my notes. This diagram says something else. I pulled this diagram off another site, but I think they're wrong. It was, I need to correct that. Its length was 60 cubits. See, they confuse cubits and feet there. That's what I get for pulling off somebody else's chart. It should be 90 feet, 90, 90 feet instead of cubits. All those cubits are wrong. That should be feet. So they got that wrong. According to the text, its, it's length is 60 cubits or 90 feet. Its width is, is 20 cubits or 30 feet. A cubit was about a foot and a half, uh, plus or minus a couple of inches and the height 30 cubits or 45 feet. The vestibule or Solomon's porch, as it was called, in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long, 30 feet long across the width of the house, and the width of the vestibule extended 10 cubits or 15 feet from the front of the house. And he made for the house windows with uh, beveled frames. And in verse 5, against the wall of the temple, he built chambers all around. So you had uh, storerooms all surrounding the the holy place and the holy of holies, and these were stacked. You had three levels, three floors. The lowest is five cubits wide. The middle one is six cubits wide, so they get wider and larger as they go up so that the supporting pillars were not in the walls but outside of the walls. And so you have three floors, and then you had uh, staircases built inside that went up to went up to each of these uh, storage rooms. And these are all described down through about verse 10. Verse 7, we note that it's that the text says, And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry, so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. That's because they did all the work at the quarry. Now, what's interesting is to read some of the fanciful ideas that the rabbis came up with as they uh, tried to interpret some of this. And so they said that the builders had a special worm that had uh, been carried on the ark with Noah, and it had the power to cut through stone without making any noise. And none of the stones used in the temple were cut with metal, and it was built in complete uh, silence. They said this worm was a shamir. was created on the last day of creation. Now, to embellish this imaginative story, uh, later on, the rabbi said that these uh, wondrous stones that were uh, used to build the Solomonic Temple were transported to heaven and were secretly replaced so that the Babylonians wouldn't know. And... Um, and these stones were not used in the second temple, that's Zerubbabel's temple, but they will reappear when the Messiah appears. So this is just some of the kind of fanciful stuff the rabbis came up with uh, because they used their imagination rather than uh, exegesis. The next section is in verses 11 to 13, the confirmation of the covenant. Now, this is when God appears and speaks a second time to Solomon. He said, concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk, there's a condition here. The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. But whether Solomon is going to be the line of the seed or not is not unconditional. It's conditional. And it's conditioned on his obedience. If he's obedient, then he will be in the line of the seed of David. If he's disobedient... He won't. And God says, concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, 
keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, the Davidic covenant. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. And so, of course, Solomon became disobedient later on in life. And the result was that the Messiah did not come through his line, but through the line of Nathan, his brother. And because of the sins of, of Manasseh, uh, eventually the Shekinah will depart the temple and um, that will fall in, uh, just before they fall into, at, uh, from the Babylonians. The next section is chapter 6, 14 30 through 38, which describes the completion of the temple. There is a summary given in verse 14. So Solomon built the temple and finished it. This is typical of Hebrew narrative where there's a summary, and then you come back from the details. Same as Genesis 1 is a summary, and then you get the details of the cre- creation of man in chapter 2. Now, verses 15 down through 20 describe the interior. It is... A combination of cedar boards and cedar paneling and gold. The walls are covered with gold, and then they're uh, covered with these uh, cedar boards. It's the same kind of thing you had with the uh, acacia wood covered with gold with the tabernacle. It is a picture of the hypostatic union, the gold representing deity and the wood cut by man representing the humanity, and so every, just like with the tabernacle, everything in the temple speaks of something about the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is built with skill and beautiful. Everything on the interior is paneled uh, with the wood, with the cypress, and also decorated with with flowers, ornamental buds. Verse eighteen, and. Um, You also have pomegranates, and recently there's been the discovery of a single pomegranate that was a decoration in the first temple, and that's the only thing that has ever been discovered uh, relative to uh, the first first temple. And so the further description of the temple is given down through verse 22, and then in verse 23 there is a picture of, uh, our, our description of the cherub that are there over the Ark of the Covenant. Their height is uh, 10 cubits high, uh, 15 feet high. Uh, one wing was 5 cubits or 7.5 feet wide. The other wing is 7.5 feet wide for a wingspan of, t- of 15, 15 feet. And so you have 15 feet on the wingspan of one, 15 feet on the other, so that gives you 30 feet across. And from wingtip to wingtip, they covered the from one in, interior wall uh, to the other. And the, these two cherubs are set up inside of the uh, Holy of Holies, overlooking uh, where the Ark of the Covenant will uh, will sit. And then it goes on describes the details. Of its of their ornamentation. In verses 31 down to 35, you have the description of the doors that went into the Holy of Holies. The two doors were of olive wood. He carved on them figures of the cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, and overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubs and on the palm trees. So for the door of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood one-fourth of the wall. Now, here's just an interesting note. How heavy do you think those doors were? They're covered with gold. And so there's a foundation stone that is under the doorpost holding up each of those doors. And that foundation stone is referred to by a word that is a, uh, uh, is a form of amen, which is the word for trust which gives us an idea of what they meant by the core word in trust is that which is solid, stable, and can't be shaken. And that word is used to describe, a form of amen is used to describe uh, that foundation stone of the doorpost. That's in, in uh, the parallel passages in, in Chronicles. So 
Verse 37, in the fourth year of the foundation, the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. So this gives us the uh, closure, another uh, chronological note. Verse 38, in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, so it takes seven years, in the month of Bull in the fall, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its details and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. So that takes us through the completion of the temple. Now, chapter 7, we focus on other construction, the construction of the royal palace in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Now, in verse 1 we read, But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. Now, there's a lot of people who say, Well, he spent seven years on the Lord's house, 13 years on his house. Hmm. He must have cared more about his own house than the Lord's house. Well, he has a uh, he has really several houses joined together, meeting rooms. It's a much more complex uh, construction project to build the king's palace. There's no indication here of a fact that he is slighting the Lord or the building of the temple. The building of the temple is a fairly simple uh, construction uh, project. The, ten, the uh, palace is 11,250 uh, square feet. It's several buildings that are interconnected. And again, he <coughs> uses uh, cedar from uh, Lebanon. Verse 2, he says he also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, which is 150 feet by 75 feet. Its height, four, uh, 30 cubits or 45 feet with four rows of cedar pillars, cedar beams. So we get the, the, the technicalities here. It's paneled with cedar above the beams. This was all quite, uh, quite glorious and quite beautiful. He also has in verse, um, six, the hall of pillars. Verse seven, he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment where he would judge. And then verse eight, he has a house for uh, the for Pharaoh's daughter for his wife so it is a, a quite a complex uh palace and it's made with uh costly stones and cut stones and verse 10 describes that the foundation was of costly stones large stones some 10 cubits and some 8 cubits or 15 feet and some uh, 12 feet Then we come to the last section here, beginning in verse 13, down through the end of the chapter in verse 51, describing the contents of the temple. The contents of the temple, and it begins by giving us an indication of who the craftsman is. Now, this is another Hiram, not the same Hiram. This is not Hiram, the king of Tyre. This is Hiram, who is half-Jewish. Verse 13, now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. Hiram is one of the most uh, well-known craftsmen in Israel. Because of his abilities with wood and with metal and decoration, because of all of his artistic skill, uh, Solomon is going to bring Hiram from Tyre. Uh, Tyre is not far from the northern area of Galilee, just a few miles in verse 14, we're told he was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre. So he is half Jewish. He's a bronze worker. He's filled with wisdom and understanding and skill and working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon, did all of his work. And now the next section, verses 15 through 22, describes the two uh, pillars that are outside of the uh, temple at the entryway. These are <clears throat> known as the pillars of Boaz and Yaquin. These are the first pillars that are made. They were uh, most people believe they were not structurally part of the temple, but they were freestanding. Now, this particular artist doesn't have them as freestanding, but they're not part of the primary architecture or support system of the temple itself, even in this particular uh, drawing. They're placed, depending on how you understand the uh, preposition, at or near the uh, porch, according to uh, 721 in Second Chronicles 3.17. Uh, 
uh, at or near in the King's passage, in front of in the Chronicles passage. They are, this is typical of a lot of different architecture in the ancient world at that time in temples where you would have these sort of freestanding uh, pillars. They're quite large. They're uh, 18 cubits high, 27 feet high with a circumference of 12 cubits, which is 18 feet, which is somewhere around 6 feet in diameter. They're hollow, but the metal, the bronze, is four finger breadths thick, which is about three inches thick, according to Jeremiah 52, uh, 21, and they were cast in uh, molds. And from what we've been able to see in the ancient world, uh, this was probably done in the Transjordan area. Let me find a map here. There we go. In the Transjordan area up here, on the Jabbok River, which isn't too far from uh, uh, where uh, Jacob saw a wrestle with God at Peniel, and it's not too far from the later uh, city of the Decapolis, Jerash. And there's evidence there that they, that because of the clay in the soils, they could they could dig out these areas in the soil and use this clay and create molds, which is where they would uh, form and shape the bronze. According to verses 16 to 20, the capitals, which were also bronze, let me go back to our picture so we can see how this description matches the uh, artist's conception. that these capitals were cast separately. They were five cubits or seven and a half feet in length. They were bowl-shaped and were adorned with pomegranates, lily petals, and a network of interwoven uh, chains. These are described in verses 20 and 21. Uh, the were capitals on the two pillars, even above and close to the rounded projection, which was beside the network. This is a network of uh, filigree and chains. And the Pomegranates, number 200, in rows around both capitals. Thus he set up the pillars of the porch of the nave, and he set up the right pillar, named it Joachim, and he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. Here is a, another artist's description. This is taken from a, uh, another uh, Jewish work, and this you see the pillars out in front in, in uh, a freestanding sense. The terms are significant. Boaz or Yaquin means he established, which would refer the he would refer to God as the one who established, indicating his initiative in establishing the kingdom. And Boaz, which means by him he is mighty, which expresses the dependence of the king upon God. So that these two pillars were a memorial to David. And in Solomon, uh, in their dependence upon the grace of God for establishing the uh, kingdom of Israel. Then we come to, we go back to another picture here. We come to the description of the molten sea, and here you have it in the middle here with the uh, bullocks underneath. And then this is the size of the uh, altar. See how small the people are in relation to the size of the altar. Often we think of these altars as rather rather small when they were when they were quite uh, large. The bronze sea is described, or the molten, also called the molten sea, in verses 23 to 26, and it was 15 feet in diameter and seven and a half feet high and 45 feet in circumference. And around it were uh, knobs in two rows. They had 12 oxen, three looking in each direction. And the sea that was set upon them um, was set on top of them. And they looked outward. The, uh, and according to Kings, it held about 11,500 gallons. But according to Second Chronicles 12.4, it held about 17,500 gallons. And perhaps the difference is explained by one is capacity and one is how much they actually 
filled it with. Then in verses 27 and following, uh, we have uh, we have the description of the carts and the labors. The carts were um, these wheeled mobile stands that carried the labors or basins for cleansing. They were uh, about six feet square and uh, five feet high, and with engraved panels all around the st- uh, all around the stands depicting cherubim, lions, and palm trees. And uh, this is what held the ten uh, bronze basins, which are described in verses uh, 38 to 39. These are also bronze. Each held about 230 gallons, so they were quite large. That's the equivalent for 40 baths. And they measured four cubits or six feet across. So they're mobile, and they are on wheels, and uh, they can be moved around. The work is summarized in verses uh, 40 down through 47. Hiram made the labors, the shovels, and the bowls, and finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon and for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars. So we get a complete description of all of the uh, detail. Verse 46 says that it was in the plain of Jordan. The king had them cast in clay molds between Sukkoth and Saratan. That is, we don't know the exact location of either of those places, but as I showed on the map, that's somewhere off of the uh, Jabbok River in what is now Jordan, what was then uh, the uh, Transjordan area and uh, under the control of the tribe of Gad. Verse 48 we read, that Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold on which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side, five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold. Now, all this is significant. The lamps focus on Jesus Christ as the light of the world. We see this in John 8.12 and John 9.5. Jesus is the light of the world. The bread represents the fact that Jesus is the bread of life, John 6.35 to 48. And the altar of incense is which is not mentioned here, but that represents the continuous uh, intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. In conclusion, verse 51, So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. That would be the storerooms around the temple. That covers the architecture of the temple. Three chapters, we did it. I didn't think I could do it. We did it, and that's the significance. So we have the temple covered, and then next time, next lesson, we'll get into the ark, all that happens bringing in the ark, the dedication of the temple. This is a tremendously significant uh, material. What we learn from looking at the construction of the temple is the detail of the artistry, that the artwork, we can apply this to music, you can apply it to any kind of creative activity of man, is not something that is taken lightly or trivially. It's not something that's compromised with mediocrity. It is something that uh, is done at the very best of its, uh, that it possibly can be done because it reflects the nature of the Creator. You look at all of the complexity of this with, with the 400 pomegranates, all the detail work, that represents the complexity of God's creation, and yet the temple itself, when you look at it, it's very simple. It's not simplistic. It's very simple. These are two things you always see you should, in all of God's creation and should be evident in any kind of biblically-based artwork. And I'm specifically thinking, because we're going to get into music again in Revelation, specifically related to music, so that 
Now, anything that man produces is where we're going to imitate the create uh, the creativeness of God because we're in the image of God. It ought to imitate these aspects, and, and we should not settle for something just because it's trendy, just because it's faddish, just because that's what people want. We should not uh, lower our standards to the lowest common denominator, but hold them high because we worship the kind of God that is expressed in the Scripture. We see this robust view of creativity and worship in the Bible, and yet what we often see today is everything is watered down to something that is so informal and so trivialized that it's no wonder that many unbelievers have no respect whatsoever for Christianity or the Bible. And this, when you study the details of this kind of uh, construction, it's just uh, extremely impressive as to how much goes into, into all of this. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study these things, to recognize that every aspect of the temple as the tabernacle before it is designed by you, revealed by you, and it is to portray, picture the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as well as his work on the cross where he died for our sins that we might have salvation by simply faith in him. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we've studied and learned uh, throughout this series. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.